You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Thanks for having us back. And I do hope Randy can join us, although 
you know, David now has skipped out on us twice, so we'll have to uh, punish him, perhaps uh, tell a, a, maybe a, an embarrassing story about David. But, yeah, Randy's hoping to join us the second part of the show, and so I'm sure when he comes aboard, uh, the, the conversation will be even more lively. Now, do you really think I'd let you all share an embarrassing story about my good friend Dr. Capes on the show? Oh, I was counting on you to ask for it. <laughs> oh, absolutely, I sure would. <laughs> Uh, oh, David's a prince of a guy, and uh, Randy is too. We just, we're really good friends. We've been friends a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were in the PhD program together at Southwestern and mm-hmm. just uh, love one another. And uh, I very much respect my two colleagues. They're brilliant scholars who've made significant contributions to New Testament studies. And, you know, I'm honored to be able to write now the second book with, with them. I was telling my wife that David Cates used to do a radio show also with where he's a Protestant, he was with a Catholic priest and a Jewish rabbi on there. I said, I don't know if, any, if we have any record of him ever going to a bar together out after the show. Yeah, yeah, he says that's the standard joke between the three of them, and they never, they never deliver the punchline, so. <laughs> well, Dr. Reza, someone might be hearing the show for the first time they didn't hear the last show. Tell us a bit about how you came to be doing what you're doing. Well, I, I was raised in a Christian home, Nick, and as I mentioned last time, that, that's that was I consider that the providence of God crucial for my spiritual development. You know, I was raised in a home where we heard of Christ and His Church and went to, you know, services to worship God every Sunday, and I'm grateful, so grateful. My parents really gave me a love for the Scriptures, and so growing up in a Christian home, unsurprising probably to most people, I came to faith as a child in Christ and uh, just continued to. Uh, growing that, and uh, I mean, I had my own little rebel time, but it wasn't all that raucous, or um, I didn't stray really too much from the faith. Really, for a while, I was just mad at God because people were, you know, critiquing the church. Uh, I'm I'm a college student at this point. I'm studying for the ministry, and I had friends who were who had left the church because they were had bad experiences. So I had that little time in my life where I thought, you know, can I be a Christian without being a member of the church? And I soon quickly realized that's not that's not possible, not only, not only in the New Testament, but in my own life. So anyway, I, I kind of had a, a re um, a revisiting of my calling and a sense of divine direction to preach the gospel to uh, and then to pursue additional studies, you know, masters and Ph.D. in hopes of, of teaching men and women to be committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ as they're as they're called in ministry. So. Um, I, uh, you know, attended Southwest Seminary, went on to England for a while, came back, got a teaching job, uh, my first teaching job at Williams, a great little Baptist liberal arts school in Arkansas. Then while I was there, um, the Lord called me to pastor this great church. I was there for five years, really thinking I'd spend the rest of my life at that church, such a great church. But always in the back of my mind, I had a secret ambition to come to my alma mater, SBU, and try to give back what was given to me. I studied with outstanding Christian scholars, men and women, who are committed to Jesus. And they were the ones that modeled me more than anywhere else what it meant to love God with all all your mind as well as your heart and soul strength. So um, anyway, I I came back to SBU in 2000, and I've been here ever since. Uh, I love what I do. I have uh, one foot in academic in the academic world, and I have another foot trying to help churches without pastors on the weekends. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm 
grateful to God. I'm married to a godly woman and who very much is committed to the kingdom and her service as a speech pathologist. Our three children now are adults. They're out of the house. And so we're rediscovering what it means to be uh, just the two of us and enjoying life together. Yeah, I, I'm remembering how Frank Turk has talked about after he got married, but it took them quite a while to adjust once the empty nest came around. He said, about five minutes. That's how long it took to change all the locks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's one of those situations where you know it's coming, and, you know, emotionally you're somewhat prepared for it, at least we were. Part yeah. of what helps kind of uh, rediscover our, our relationship, just the two of us, as we, I mentioned this, Sherry, you know, it hasn't been all that traumatic. We've t- talked to some friends who've had a very traumatic experience when their adult children leave. We haven't had that. And Sherry said, you know, I think it's because we continue to work on our relationship constantly throughout, you know, the raising of our children. Mm-hmm. And plus a sense that they, they left our home with God's blessing and mm-hmm. we encourage them to pursue their passions, their vision, mm-hmm. and even their place in the kingdom. And so they're doing well, all three. So I think all of that helps Mm-hmm. have a sense of blessing and kind of a joy of rediscovering. You know, we look across one another at the dinner table, and I see her, and I think, I remember you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sure why we fell in love, and so we're having a good time. Yeah, I think there are many times, unfortunately, in a marriage where kids come along, and the kids become the focal point of a relationship instead of the parents remembering their first commitment has to be to one another. Yeah, exactly. Plus, Sharon and I were married for eight years before Mm-hmm. Our firstborn came along, Andrew, and so that's quite a bit of time, yep. uh, you know, to try to uh, to set your feet in a relationship where the two of you are growing together. And, mm-hmm. But anyway, by, with God's grace, with his help and mercy, um, we've been blessed, uh, and we continue to try to, you know, just enjoy one another and enjoy our time on earth and to try to be committed committed to the Lord and his kingdom. Mm-hmm. Well, we're not here to talk about marriage today as fascinating a topic as it is, so we're talking about Rediscovering Jesus. Now, there was a band several years ago, a thing called Depeche Mode, and I think they came out with a song called Personal Jesus. Now, I haven't heard it, but the title just popped in my head a while ago because it, many times, many of us do have our own personal Jesus. I mean, you already count a story in a book about it, a debate in a, in a seminary setting, I think, over whether you should drink alcohol or not. And someone said, well, my Jesus would not drink alcohol. This, is this something that's really common you find going on when people saying, my Jesus wouldn't do X, Y, Z? Yeah, I think if we may not say it explicitly, but we all, I think every single one of us, no matter who we are, we operate with a presumption, a default mode in our head, and that is that the Jesus we uh, know and those of us who follow Jesus, you know, love and are trying to be committed to him, we work with the presumption that that is the real Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but the truth of the matter is, the Jesus we have in our head, the Jesus we even have in our heart, um, is a composite Jesus. It's a mm-hmm. Jesus that we have put together from passages of Scripture, from Jesus films, from pictures of Jesus. We have this mishmash, this mosaic of a Jesus that we've constructed. And and we can't help it. We all do this. It's, there's yeah. not anything wrong with that. It's just that what what is what is uh, needs to be challenged is the presumption that that composite Jesus is the real one. And therefore, if I come across a Jesus either in the scriptures or with someone else or outside the scriptures, 
we automatically assume, well, that can't be right because my Jesus is like this and not like that. And so the reason we wrote the book, you know, is mm-hmm. is all of us uh, operate with this presumption, and it's really an exercise in holding up a mirror and saying, no, wait, your Jesus is a constructed one, and maybe we need to recognize that, uh, that he doesn't belong to any one of us. He really belongs, uh, he doesn't belong to one person. One person doesn't have the privilege you over another, that really he belongs to all people. Um, and we, so we wrote the book to disabuse students of the idea because they do come to our classes. They come to our classes with a rather narrow view of him and a rather naive view that their Jesus is the real one. Mm-hmm. And it really takes some time, Nick. It takes some time. Yeah. I mean, this has happened. You know, you can point stuff out in the scriptures. You can say, look, here it is, and they won't like it. And mm-hmm. and not only do they not like it, they would rather ignore it. And if we are people who believe in the authority of God's word, if we believe the scriptures are truth received from God, then we need to pay attention to every part of the scriptures, not just the parts we like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm remembering how it said that Albert Schweitzer dropped a kind of a a bomb on historical Jesus studies when we wrote the quest for historical Jesus because he said if you look at the historical Jesus that all of even non-Christian scholars are saying they'd go and they'd look at Jesus and lo and behold Jesus came out looking exactly like themselves many times right and that's you know Schweitzer's responding to what the so-called first quest of historical Jesus mm-hmm. and that's a period in scholarship where, due to the age of enlightenment, reason was elevated as a tool of discovering truth, uh, even elevated to the level of the authority of Scripture. And scholars in those days who were believers in Jesus, most of them, you know, they they affirmed their faith in him, but they came to realize that some of the church tradition that was handed down to them was built more on superstition or built on prejudice than on the Scriptures themselves. And so they put themselves to the task of saying, all right, let's, let's look at the Gospels. Let's see um, what in the Gospels are, uh, are reliable or authentic. Mm. So they begin to compare. You know, the Gospels don't line up in every story, so they can't all be true is their presumption. And therefore, since there are differences, we need to figure out what really happened. And so here comes this this uh, prejudice that says we can figure out what actually happened 2,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. And part of the other part of that uh, filter that they're trying to sort out what is, you know, what is superstition and what really is fact uh, is uh, this idea that we see the world rightly through science. And science, of course, dismisses the supernatural. Science dismisses uh, what cannot be explained reasonably and so these scholars in the in the 1800s began to basically rip out parts of the gospel saying well, there's no way Jesus would perform miracles because we know miracles don't happen and by the time they're done Schweitzer noticed by the time they're done they they get rid of the miracle working Jesus they get rid of the apocalyptic Jesus who makes predictions about the end of the world and the coming judgment of God basically all the stuff that offended them they got rid of, and the Jesus they had left, Schweitzer noticed, looked a lot like them. <laughs> In other yeah. words, what they admired about him is the stuff, really, that they prefer in their in the Christ that they want to uh, believe and follow. So, yeah, there's this mirror effect that happens 
whether we're scholars or, again, with lay people, mm -hmm. that we're drawn to certain parts, say, of the Gospels. We like them, and maybe we're drawn to them because something has more to do with our preference. Mm -hmm. And we, if you will, we almost lose the scandalous quality of the Jesus we read in the New Testament. Yeah, it's uh, an interesting approach you've also taken in this book, because what you've done is you've taken various parts of the Bible and said, if this was the only part we had, what kind of Jesus would we have? And then you look at Jesus in, say, Mormonism and Islam and Gnosticism and say, if this was a real Jesus, what would our Christianity be like today? How did you all come up with this idea? <laughs> That's a good question, Nick. Sometimes, uh, you know, uh, the sum is greater than our parts, the three of us. We have just a lot of fun. And mm -hmm. uh, David and Randy are incredibly creative and insightful, brilliant uh, scholars. And the three of us get together, and we had talked about, you know, offering a companion volume to Rediscovering Paul. And I, I was really the one that really kept pushing the book Rediscovering Jesus. But unlike the Paul book, where we see the Paul book as a centering text for a class, we knew that there's so many really good books like that, uh, you know, like Mark Strauss's book. Um, is just so good at really answering all the main scholarly questions and really introducing students to the first time to an academic study of Jesus and the Gospels. So we knew we weren't going to really improve on Mark's work. So... But there was this other part of a gospel class that always happens in my class, and that's where students, you know, they raise questions of that, that scholars really don't ask. I mean, the scholarly world has really good questions that, to ask and therefore need answering. But, I, you know, students bring up some really good questions, too. And so really this book was a way of getting at the students' questions because they would say, you know, what about the Mormon Jesus? Is Because, is, you know, is this especially when Romney was running for president. Is, is the Mormon Jesus the same as our Jesus? Uh, aren't they the same? And, uh, and of course, uh, Islam is becoming more and more popular uh, in, in our culture because there are devoted uh, Muslims who are committed to their faith, and the Quran speaks of Jesus. So is their Jesus the same? And then, of course, the Gnostic Jesus with authors like Dan Brown, who basically, you know, wrote the bestseller and had this big blockbuster film, The Da Vinci Code, that's really built on the premise that the Gnostic Jesus is really the, the, the better Jesus and that the church, you know, conspired to snuff out the real one, the Gnostic one, and, and basically invented this theological Jesus that becomes orthodox uh, for the ages. Well... So we thought, you know what we need to do? We need to write a book that addresses those, you know, Jesuses outside the Bible, offer a charitable read. As a matter of fact, we're hoping that a Mormon, if a Mormon picks up our chapter and reads it, a Mormon will, will nod their head and go, yep, yeah, that's, that's what we believe about him. And so we would offer a charitable read, say, of the Mormon Jesus, but at the same time say, and something Mormons would resonate with, that their Jesus is not the same as the so-called, you know, Orthodox Jesus. Um, as a matter of fact, Mormons are, are very, very quick to say, and they're proud to say, mm -hmm. that the, the Mormon Jesus is not Orthodox, because they're convinced that Orthodoxy was corrupted by Greek philosophy back during the Christological Council. Mm -hmm. So what you want to do is offer a book that says, puts 
put before the reader, look at all these other Jesuses outside the Bible, and say, but yet is our Jesus the same? Now, the only way you're going to be able to answer that question is if you wrestle with the New Testament. And not just your favorite Jesus, not just your composite Jesus, not just the Jesus that you've grown up with all your life in church, but the taking into account the entire New Testament. So how are we going to do that, Nick? Are we going to, um, you know, basically take the whole New Testament and try to offer our own composite Jesus? See how dangerous that would be? Yeah. We'd be predicting ourselves. So we thought, this is what we're going to do. And we learned it, by the way, from the biblical theology movement. Mm-hmm. Just to say, and, and also literary criticism, it's to say, you know what? There was a time when Mark's gospel was the only thing they, uh, say, a certain community of, of the early church had. Why would Mark want to write a gospel story like that, for example, with that infancy narrative? And, mm-hmm. and what would the church think about Jesus if all they had were Mark's gospel? And that's when it clicked. That's when it's mm-hmm. like, okay, we're going to give Mark's Jesus, Matthew's Jesus, Luke's John, Paul's Jesus, we're going to look at the the writer of Hebrews, the preachers, Jesus, as we call him, and then the, the rest of the general letters we call the Jesus of Exiles, and even the apocalyptic Jesus. Let's take each one of these books, put on blinkers, you know, blinders, and say, if this were our only Jesus, you know, what's different about him from all the others, and if this were our only Jesus, what would we believe? Not only what we believe, but how would it affect our practice as Christians and as members of the church? And that was, that was a lot of fun. Because what the reader, what it forces you to do is take note of the stuff in the Gospels or in Paul or in the rest of the New Testament that we tend to ignore because it doesn't fit our prescribed, uh, prejudiced, uh, preformed Jesus. Mm-hmm. Now, we can't cover every single Jesus that you have presented in here. So I figure we just cover some of the highlights. And when it comes to Gospels, I thought many times when we're telling people that they need to trust in Jesus and see him as he is, we start them off with the Gospel of John for some reason. Say, go through and just see what you think of Jesus. So let's suppose we didn't have the rest of our New Testament. We just had John. What would we think about Jesus, and how would Christianity be different today? Actually, if all we had were John's gospel, most of us in the evangelical world would be very comfortable with that. Uh Because this Jesus is one that, like you said, we were first introduced to. He emphasizes believing in him. Uh Why would we need to believe in him? Well, we believe in him so that we can have eternal life. It's no surprise that John 3.16, you might say, is the Shema of the evangelical church. It's the one verse we've all memorized, we all know it, and it sums up, you might say, the message of the Gospel of John. And that is, God sent his Son into the world so that we might have faith and therefore might live forever. And so, if all we had were John's Jesus... Uh, we wouldn't talk much about the second coming. Uh, Jesus, you know, he does say in John 14, you know, uh, in my Father's house are many mansions. If I go away, I'm going to come back and receive you to myself. See? So, sure enough, he goes away. His disciples had a hard time accepting it in John's gospel, just like the others. And he does leave. You know, he dies. But, sure enough, he comes back in John chapter 20. 
and he appears before them, you know, in the room that has doors that are locked, and he gives them the Holy Spirit. Some scholars call it that, you know, John's Pentecost, the Johannine version of the Pentecost. And he breathes on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. And so there's a very clear sense in John's Gospel that that's the second coming, that just as Jesus said, I've got to leave, and I'll send a comforter for you. And when I come back, you know, you'll receive this blessing. And sure enough, he comes back. They receive the Holy Spirit. And, you know, there's a little business that needs to be taken care of between Jesus and Peter, you know, because in John's Gospel, Peter denies him, and he's cold-hearted. He, he doesn't, you know, the, the synoptics have Peter, even in Luke, they make eye contact, you know, when Peter denies him the third, the third time, and the rooster crows, and there's this moment in Luke where they look at one another, and Peter's overwhelmed with regret and grief, and he starts crying. Not in John. In John, Peter is cold-hearted. He's cold-hearted. He, there's no regret. There's no weeping. He denies Jesus and walks away. So John has to have this in chapter 20 when he's got to have this moment where, you know, Jesus and Jesus got some business to do with Peter and, and reclaim him. But for the most part, you get the impression in John's gospel that Jesus came to, to offer eternal life. And this eschatology is a realized eschatology. And so really... Um, we, you know, we would uh, be very happy in the evangelical world if, world if all we had were John's Jesus. That mm -hmm. something that would be contrasted as well, and this would be the case if all we had was Mark's Jesus, is we probably wouldn't celebrate Christmas. That's right, and mm -hmm. that that's something. But it would be true with John as well. I should have mentioned that. Yeah. Nick, but exactly right. I mean, John doesn't have an empty narrative. John starts his gospel from the beginning of time, right? It has echoes of Genesis 1, in the beginning was the Word. Mm -hmm. And you're right. Mark has this uh, um, vacancy in our, in our story. You know, we, we tend to think the gospel story has to start with Christmas, the birth of Jesus. But if all we had were Mark's gospel, there'd be no sense of the, of the significance of, or the dramatic details, or even supernatural circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth like Luke has or the prophetic, you know, fulfillment in Matthew's gospel. Jesus in Mark's gospel is simply a man. Mm -hmm. He's, I mean, I don't mean to sound, you know, pejorative, but he's just a man who shows up because a prophesied man, John, you know, Malachi predicts, and this is the way Mark starts his gospel, the prophecy has to do with John, so to speak, as much as Jesus he quotes that text, which is a mashup of Isaiah and the voice crying in the wilderness, and uh, the divine visitor who comes and announces the, you know, the presence or the coming of the Lord in Malachi 3. Mark starts his gospel with a kind of a mashup of that and says, you know, the prophet's going to come to prepare the way of the Lord. And sure enough, John shows up on cue, does his thing, gets out of the way, and here comes this man the only person from Galilee who submitted to John's baptism. And as soon as the Spirit falls on Jesus, all of a sudden, the, the demonic horde, all the evil powers, take notice of him, and they come after him. And so it shouldn't surprise us in Mark's Gospel that the first miracle he performs is casting out a demon. And um, I like to compare him to like a Jedi Knight. You know, he is, all these evil forces are coming at Jesus, and he's constantly, you know, combating evil and casting out demons and he's basically single-handedly bringing in the kingdom of God the reign of God 
by pushing back evil and darkness. And uh, that's Mark's that's Mark's Jesus. He's as much an exorcist as he is one who uh, heals the sick and raises the dead. And by contrast, if all we have is John, we never know Jesus was an exorcist. Right. Good point, Nick, because John doesn't tell stories of, of demonic possession mm-hmm. or exorcism. And, and if all we had were Mark's gospel, uh, you know, or if all we had were John's gospel, we'd never know that Jesus taught in parables. Right. There, the most you get is like an extended parable uh, that you have in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. That's the closest you get to a parable in John. Mm-hmm. And in Mark, Mark really doesn't feature the teaching of Jesus. He has this one chapter where he seems to cram all the parables in, you know. Mark chapter 4 just kind of gets them all in. But for the most part, in Mark's gospel, Jesus doesn't come really to, to preach and offer these lengthy sermons. In Mark's gospel, Jesus is a man of action. He comes to do the work of God. And it's like, get out of my way. I've only got so much time. i got to make his path straight, and I'm going to bring the kingdom of God to earth uh, by the power of my ministry. And so Mark, Mark's story is incredibly dramatic and, and action-packed. And John is also much more vertically focused and otherworldly since evangelicals tend to like the good behavior aspects and way we treat one another, you're not going to find much of that in John. Right. There's not a, a very strong, what we would call, social ethic. Mm-hmm. Again, because in John's gospel, the focus is on him. Mm-hmm. He doesn't spend time explaining the kingdom and what it takes to get into the kingdom, right, the ethics that are required, mm-hmm. like you get, say, Matthew and Luke. Um, in John's gospel, the focus is on himself. That's all why he spends all his time explaining who he is using I am statements mm-hmm. and really comparing himself to many things. A lot of analogical language, a lot of metaphors. I am the gate. I, you know, I am the good shepherd. Um, I am the light of the world. And so even his miracles in John's gospel aren't just to help people who need God's mercy. Uh, in John's gospel, the, the miracles of Jesus are as much about him as about the people who need them. So his miracles are signs, John calls them. John can't even bring himself to call them miracles. He calls them signs because they reveal who Jesus is. So when you read the end of Ma- uh, John, chapter 20, he says that all these things were written, all these signs. You know, No library could contain all the books if we told you all the signs Jesus performed, but I chose these seven so that you would know, you would believe that he's the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you'll have eternal life. So Jesus is the focus of John's gospel, believing in him, and then loving him, and loving one another, and counting on eternal life when you die. That's pretty much the gospel according to John. Now, as we move on, the next major section and we come across after Acts, and see, I don't think you have a section of that, is the Pauline Epistles. Now, when I was in Bible college, I remember a professor telling us that many of us tend to like the Pauline Epistles a lot because they fit into the Western logical mindset a whole lot better. We don't understand a lot of things go on in, say, James, and the Gospels really come from another culture, but we can look at pause the pistols and say, you know, I see an argument here. Yeah, I can make sense of this. I mean, there's no doubt many of our sermons really come from Paul's epistles, but if all we had was, was Paul's epistles, we really wouldn't know that much about Jesus 
historically, which is a point that uh, mythicists always like to bring up and say, well, if there was a historical Jesus, why didn't Paul write about him so much? And really, if all we had was the epistles, like I said, there wouldn't be much to go on, would there? No, I mean, Paul relies heavily upon uh, a, a knowledge of the historical Jesus, meaning he presumes people know that Jesus was a real flesh and blood Jewish man who accomplished much for the kingdom. But, you know, as you were talking about Paul and people holding his feet to the fire for not describing what Jesus was like when he walked the earth like you get in the Gospels, you know, I, I would say to them, well, we all should write based on what we know. Right. We can't write what we don't know. And since Paul never met the historical Jesus, the one who walked on earth, since the only, but, you know, he didn't hear a parable of Jesus, probably never saw a miracle of Jesus. You know, there's really, there's no evidence that Paul ever met the man, Jesus of Nazareth, before he, uh, you know, was crucified. But Paul says explicitly that he met Jesus Christ. And Acts tells the same story, that he all had this end-of-the-world experience that scholars call a Christophany, an appearance of Christ. Mm-hmm. And because of that Christophanic experience of Paul meeting the resurrected Messiah, who commissions him to, that Paul's going to be the apostle to the, to the Gentiles, and therefore he will take the gospel to the ends of the earth, which was very much a vision of the prophets like Isaiah. Isaiah visioned today when God would not only gather all the scattered Jews all over the world, but that he would even draw Gentiles to himself. And and the gospel, the good news of God's blessing through Abraham was going to go even to the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. It, you know, because God promised Abraham he would not just be the father of a nation, but a multitude of nations. Mm-hmm. So Paul sees himself, I think, as the fulfillment of Isaiah's prediction mm-hmm. of this one who will announce good news to the coastlands. And uh, as a servant, you might say, of the servant of the Lord. And so Paul writes of what he knows. And what he knows is his own experience of Christ that didn't just end. It didn't end with the Christophany. Paul had several of these revelations, these apocalyptic experiences of Christ. But more than that for Paul, or just as important, is Paul had the Hebrew Scriptures, which he says, like you read this in 2 Corinthians 3, Whenever he reads the Old Testament, as we call it, he sees the gospel everywhere. <laughs> it's like it's everywhere. And so the, really the Hebrew scriptures were his literary gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, and not just predicting Jesus, but uh, revealing the truth of the gospel. And so, But not only those things, but Paul very much believes in the fact that the spirit of Christ lives in him, inhabits him, mm-hmm. speaks through him. Uh, gives him insight into the scriptures. And so his spiritual hermeneutic, you might say, is one that was an ongoing revelatory experience for Paul as he lived out the gospel of Jesus and as, of course, he preached it to uh, pagans. And as far as we know of all the writers of the New Testament, Paul is the only one who really had any formal training in Hebrew scriptures and was very well trained in even Greek knowledge of the time. Yeah, he was a Pharisee, see, mm-hmm. so they, uh, and in their day, that didn't mean you were a bad person. You know, right. today, in the Christian world, we say, well, you're a Pharisee, 
that would be a, a pejorative uh, expression. But for Paul's day, to be a Pharisee was a noble thing. Mm-hmm. It was someone who took the scripture seriously. And let me, let me just put this before the, your listeners. Um, Pharisees were not the preachers of the time, okay? They're not the professional clergy. Right. They were lay people. You, we, we call them, they would maybe uh, be similar to our Sunday school teachers or, or Christians in the church who take very seriously studying the scriptures and even, you know, maybe even attending colleges so they can, or even a Bible school, you know, to learn more about the scriptures and then teach and constantly read. And that's the Pharisee of the day. And so um, Paul was a Pharisee who spent a lot of time uh, reading the scriptures and studying them and studying what his teachers taught him about scriptures. And, uh, yeah, so he, he and it, show, it shows in the way he, you know, he models for us in his letters when he quotes an Old Testament text, he, he interprets it, and he's showing us this is the way I read the text. And basically he reads it, he takes the same principles of the same her- hermeneutical approach as the rabbis did mm-hmm. in, Paul's, in Jesus and Paul's day. But mm-hmm. also, Paul was a, was born in Tarsus. Scholars debate how long did he live in Tarsus. Was he raised there? Because he also claims uh, to have studied under Gamaliel. So the, the real question is, how long did he spend in Tarsus, and to what extent did he receive a Hellenistic education? And that's a debated issue among scholars. But at least this, Paul was familiar with yep. uh, some great Greek uh, philosophers and what they taught, uh, perhaps even some of the great uh, stories, uh, Hellenistic uh, parables, you might call them, mm-hmm. and stories. And so, and perhaps even aware of some of the ways in which the Greek sophists would use rhetoric to offer kind of persuasive speeches. So... So scholars say, you know, Paul has at least a, a, a working knowledge of these things because it shows up in his letters. Yeah. And when we were talking about John, we talked about how you wouldn't find much about the return of Christ in John. But if you went to Paul, you would find quite a bit about the return of Christ in Paul. Exactly. Just like you do, say, with the synoptics, you know, mm-hmm. especially Matthew, you know, Mark, and there's even evidence in Luke, Luke Acts. Uh, there's the sense that Jesus comes and he inaugurates the kingdom uh, and he sets the kingdom in motion on earth, but he still uh, has uh, work to do through the church and then he will come at the end and finish the job that he started. Um, Paul has the same mentality. Paul has this idea that Christ, um, he, Paul doesn't talk a lot about the kingdom. Um, he talks more about uh, justification and righteousness and redemption and and he talks a lot about the work of the church fulfilling Christ's call for the gospel. But for the most part, Paul has the same idea that we're uh, the, you might say uh, the kingdom has broken into history. Um, the end of the age has come for Paul. He says in one Corinthians ten, he acts like he's got a front row seat to the end of the world upon whom the end of the ages has come. And he's convinced old things have passed away, everything's become new, because mm-hmm. the work of Jesus is an apocalyptic work, like leaven leavening the whole lump, just like Jesus taught, you know, like yeah. mustard seed that's going to grow to be a big tree. Uh, the, the kingdom is already among us. The work of Christ is already among us. The koinonia, you, you might say, of the fellowship of the saints. And this gospel is being lived out in him, in the church, and therefore the church is this 
witness to the presence of Christ, his very real presence, and to the end of the age. And therefore, we should be true to one another. We should be true to the Lord by being committed to the, and faithful to the gospel, live out the story of Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, that's another part of Paul that he contributes our understanding of how we can participate in this work of Christ mm-hmm. and with the anticipation that Jesus is coming back any moment. You know, when you talk about the story of Christ, it's a, a contrast. If all we had were the Gospels, we know a whole lot about the life of Christ, but we wouldn't know as much about what that meant. We wouldn't know about how that works out the atonement. What's the relationship with grace and the law? What about our relationship with Gentiles and such. Meanwhile, if all we had was Paul's epistles, we wouldn't know much about the life of Christ, but we'd know a whole lot about all those other issues. That's right. Paul is rightfully called, you know, a significant theologian of the church, and he spends a lot of time explaining the theological significance of the work of Christ mm-hmm. on the cross mm-hmm. and the significance of his burial and his resurrection. But not only as a, an abstract concept, Paul's not just working out of theology so we can get our our doctrine straight and we have all the right ideas in our head for Paul the gospel is a living person the gospel is Jesus Christ and so it's not enough simply to understand you know that he died for our sins according to scriptures that he was buried and he was raised in the third day according to scriptures and he appeared to the apostles for Paul this narrative of death burn resurrection this story is the embodiment of the gospel in us Mm-hmm. So Paul was convinced. I guess another way of putting it, you know, Jesus says in the Gospels, you know, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Mm-hmm. Paul explains what that should look like, what a crucified life should look like, what it means to follow Jesus, to live out his gospel story by the power of the Spirit in our lives together. And so, uh, you know, Paul taught his converts that the, the way of the cross is the way we overcome the world. And it's the way we live out what we believe. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, now it's foolishness to the world. (laughs) It's a scandal, uh, you know, to his Jewish kinsmen, and it's foolishness to the Greeks. But for Paul, the way of the cross is is the power and salvation of God. And so Paul's other unique contribution is not only making theological sense of what Jesus accomplished on the cross and his burial and his resurrection, but how we actually experience that, how we participate in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Let's spend some time talking about an interesting Jesus as well, especially to many of us who are Protestants. And that would be the Hebrews Jesus, because we're not used to Jesus, the idea of him as a priest, for instance. But if you read Hebrews, that is a major part of who Jesus is. That's exactly right. And... uh, I think, um, you know, maybe some of our Catholic brothers and sisters would appreciate Hebrews more than Protestant mm-hmm. for the very point that you're making is that the the preachers, and we call him the preacher because really Hebrews isn't a letter. Uh, it doesn't have the form of a letter at the beginning. Now, it has a little bit of the epistolary form at the end where he sends greetings. But Hebrews really reads more like a sermon. Indeed, he, the recipients of this letter, he calls them listeners. So there's a, there's a sense in which what we have in Hebrews is either several sermons that have been put together or, Nick, consider mm-hmm. this, one really long sermon. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, can you imagine sitting through this sermon? Because it is theologically loaded mm-hmm. with heavy freight. And I'm telling you, not only is it brilliant Greek, it's probably 
the best Greek we have in the New Testament. Whoever whoever preached the sermon and eventually wrote it down, my goodness, they were schooled in mm-hmm. Greek uh, thinking and rhetoric and philosophy. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is, as as Greek as it is, as good Greek as it is, and even has some, you might say, philosoph- Greek philosophical ideas in it, it's addressing a Jewish problem. Uh-huh. And the Jewish problem is this. How could Jesus, who is the son of David, which means he belongs to the tribe of Judah, how could he offer a sacrifice that's acceptable to God for two reasons? How could he do it? One, one problem one is only Levites can do that, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, if Jesus is of, of the tribe of Judah... He can't act like a priest because everyone knows God set up a different tribe to be priests, the Levites. Mm -hmm. That's problem number one. Problem number two, which Paul addresses specifically like in Galatians 3, that Jesus died a cursed death, right? Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Mm -hmm. It's a presumption behind the preacher's sermon in Hebrews, and that's this. A human sacrifice was an abomination to God. That's what the Canaanites did. Right. So how could how could you take something that is a human sacrifice that is not only not an abomination but get this it is the only way God will accept a sacrifice that is perpetually effective for eternity mm-hmm. from a man who wasn't a Levite right. <laughs> right so really the the sermon is addressing a Jewish problem on those two fronts so he spends the first half of the sermon chapters one through seven. And basically explaining how it is that Jesus, who's who's the son of David, could perform the right of a priest, mm-hmm. and uh, basically he basically comes to the conclusion: yes, Jesus is is the son of David. He's he's the son of God. He's enthroned. He was made a little lower than the angels, but now he's exalted because he is a true blue son of David, son of God. And the reason he could or, or offer a sacrifice because he's not a Levite is that he serves under a different priest, and it's the priesthood of Melchizedek. So really, there are there there's one scripture for him that if he didn't have it, he couldn't really make his argument. Mm-hmm. And that's Psalm 110. Right. Where God says, you know, David says, the Lord said, my sin of my hand took all your enemies your foot. And he speaks of a priesthood that will come, the son of David will be of the order of Melchizedek, and therefore he will establish an eternal kingdom, an eternal priesthood. And Psalm 110 is referencing a a very mysterious character that shows up in the patriarchal narratives, where Abram comes to this king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means, king of righteousness in Hebrew, who happens to be uh, from a city called Peace, uh, Jerusalem. And, And Abraham acknowledges his superior priesthood by paying tithes to him. So, and then Melchizedek blesses Abraham. So our preacher says, look, Jesus has the priestly credentials. According to Psalm 110, he has a better priesthood than the Levites because he's a king priest, and he is the one that even Abraham recognized Melchizedek as superior priesthood. Therefore, when Abraham bent his knee, right, and mm-hmm. paid tithe to Melchizedek. Every Levite who was in his loins did that. Mm-hmm. So now the second part of Hebrews, which is chapters 8 and following, now that he said, well, Jesus does have the credentials to offer the sacrifice, how is it that a human sacrifice is going to do better than the, what the, 
the, the sacrificial system that God set up in the law, which is through the temple. And the rest of the sermon is basically explaining how he had to offer sacrifice mm-hmm. by himself. His body is the veil by which he enters into the holy place, and the superior temple of God is in heaven. And, and the reason it, he had to do it with his own body, with his own life, his own blood, is because, and this is the preacher's argument, that's the only sacrifice that effectively deals with the sin problem, our, our uh, dirty conscience. Yeah. And so he, he says this sacrifice was necessary to enter into the real temple of God. He had to, had to have a veil, which is body, to enter the real temple of God and offer his sacrifice. And we know that the sacrifice is superior because uh, it cleans our conscience. It's interesting you talk about Psalm 110 because Psalm 110 verse 1 is actually the Old Testament verse that is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. It's found in the Gospels. It's found in the Pauline Epistles. It's found in Hebrews. You know, I didn't know that, but that doesn't surprise me. Mm-hmm. It really is the linchpin argument for the preacher. If yeah. he doesn't have Psalm 110, he, he really has a harder way to go. Mm-hmm. Well, let's uh, move to another interesting aspect of uh, when we think about Jesus, we usually think about gentle Jesus, meek and mild, the, the good shepherd of a flock, the lamb of God. All of that would change drastically if all we had was a book of Revelation and we would read about wrath, judgment, destruction, the one coming of a sword to make war, wiping his sword off from the blood of his enemies. We would have a, a really different Jesus, wouldn't we? Yeah, yeah, and I think maybe that the apocalyptic Jesus is not appreciated uh, and for, for that reason is because it is so opposite maybe of the our favorite Sunday school picture of Jesus, you know, sitting with a big grin on his face and children, you know, dancing around his feet. And um, but the apocalyptic Jesus is an incredibly frightful, scary character. I mean, when you think about it, yeah, what does Jesus look like now? I mean, if he is a if he's at the right hand of God and he's reigning as a king. In this world that is foreign to us, what what would he look like? And of course, the picture of the revelation, you know, in certain ways, it's kind of doing something similar that the preacher did in Hebrews, right? Because the preacher's trying to explain how it is that Jesus offered this perfect sacrifice in the heavenly tabernacle where God actually lives, right? Right. And therefore, we say in the book, you know, if all we had were the pre- the Hebrew, the priestly Jesus, rather than re- so we wouldn't talk much about the cross as much. We would have, a, uh, you might say, a, an Easter pageant, uh, an Easter story where Jesus dresses like a priest and he's in, going into a heavenly temple and he's offering the heavenly sacrifice. Um, and so Ascension Sunday would be far more important to us than even maybe Easter Sunday, mm-hmm. which I think is interesting. Right. And so with the apocalyptic Jesus, we get, you know, the scroll of the sky is open, right? Uh-huh. We The seer sees a portal and he passes through and into the heavenly world. And so we get a glimpse, you might say, behind the veil. Mm-hmm. We get to see what's happening in the real world of the presence of God. And this Christ who appears meek and mild on earth, bringing you the kingdom, uh, is a powerful king. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's got he's got fire shooting out of his eyes. His yeah. hair like Einstein, right? Uh-huh. And he's got a sword 
for a tongue that's ready to cut people's heads off. And, mm -hmm. of course, when the seer sees this Christophanic, right, appearance, the mm -hmm. appearance of Jesus, he has a Christophany too, mm -hmm. he falls on his face in fear, shaking, scared to death, as he should be because this righteous king mm -hmm. is ready with his sword, now hear this, with his word to judge not only the world, but to bring judgment to his own church. And mm -hmm. that's what the first two chapters are, is he's, he's dictating this letter, and he's bringing a righteous judgment to the seven churches of Turkey. Yeah, that was the thing about it. If we read the Gospels, we'll find several stories of Jesus having compassion on those who are sick and healing them. When you go to Revelation, it, it's a Jesus who will cure you without even blinking. <laughs> yeah, and here, but this is where... You, some of my, our listeners might think, oh boy, a Rambo Jesus, you know. Right. Oh, we finally have the military guy who's going to really uh, uh, chop people's heads off. But here's the truth of the matter. If you read it very carefully, don't get caught up in the metaphor or the symbols. Because mm -hmm. if you read it very carefully, you see the reason he has the authority, you know, to break the seals and effect the will of God on earth is because as a lion of Judah... And his fierce royal power, like lions are, he appears. That's, that's what the seer sees. This happens several times in the Revelation. It happens several times where audition and vision are put side by side. And the seer will hear one thing, but then he'll see something else. And the classic example, of course, occurs in chapter 5. You know, he's weeping. Who's going to bring the will of God to earth? Who's going to open the sealed scroll? And then, and the angel says, oh, be quiet, stop crying. The Lion of Judah is here. Here he comes. And so the seer turns and probably would expect to see someone like Aslan, you know, this yeah. big, powerful lion that roars and is going to bring his reign against the, the uh, miscreants and the rebels who oppose God. Instead, he hears of the lion, but he sees a really strange lamb. Uh -huh. That's got seven eyes, seven horns, and not only strange in his appearance, but um, he is a sacrificed lamb, a lamb who's uh, has already been sacrificed, standing as if, but still slain. Yeah. And what the revelation pictures is the way Christ has overcome the world. That is, uh -huh. not by killing his enemies, but by dying for them. He calls those who follow the lamb wherever he goes, to, do off, to use the same weapon, to offer themselves as a sacrifice. And what that does, ironically, in the Revelation, is the more martyrs' blood that is spilt, the, the, the more God will bring about judgment and justice. And the, the great day of the Lord that finally comes, that great battle of Armageddon, there's no war. There's no fight. He simply shows up with a sword, and through his word, he defeats his enemies. So, this is not a Rambo Jesus. This is a sacrificial lamb who compels other uh, followers, you know, to follow lamb wherever he goes, is to use the weapon of warfare, which we call the sacrifice of Jesus. And when we read the book of Revelation, we're very tempted again, kind of left behind scenarios, and think about the end of a world, and such, although there are various different interpretations of it, as readers on my blog know, but years ago I did a study on Revelation on my blog, because I was going through seeing what the Bible says about the Trinity, and 
I decided to approach Revelation in a different way, where it starts off, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, and said, what if I went to the book of Revelation, just tried to ignore everything I could about eschatology, and just see what it says about who Jesus is, and it's an incredibly fascinating look if you go through and try to not get caught up in end times in the earth, and what is this book telling me about Jesus? You're exactly right, Nick, and that's what we try to do in the book. Yeah is say, you know, here's a Jesus, although he's scary, and we kind of say tongue-in-cheek, we, we joke a little bit and say, you know, if we were to have pictures of this Jesus, you know, if someone were to, to paint him uh, so different from that meek and mild picture that's typically in our churches, we certainly wouldn't have pictures of the apocalyptic Jesus in our children's buildings. No. <laughs> it would no. very, very intimidating, mm-hmm. and rightfully so, because he's the Lord. Mm-hmm. Of the earth, and this Lord should be served and worshipped because of the way He reigns. Mm. The way He reigns is through His sacrifice, and so yeah, I, I think that it would be what you did, Nick, on your own. I mm. would encourage all your listeners to do that. Is just pick up the Revelation and try hard to set aside what I see are impositions on the book. Mm-hmm. Because if you'll, if you'll read these people who do kind of pop eschatology, they don't offer a, a really a commentary on Revelation. They don't. Yep. They pick and choose parts of it, and they really pull it out of its context. And then they read those parts in light of the newspapers, the headlines, yep. with some others thrown in there. And I think they're abusing the Revelation because its purpose was mm-hmm. to inspire mm-hmm. the church through their worship of the Lord to be faithful to him then, now, and forevermore. And I think uh, it's a really healthy exercise to think, what if this were only Jesus? We say in the end, this Jesus is not going to be very effective for uh, evangelism explosion. Yeah. You know, you're not going to get people to believe in this Jesus. And really the revelation works with the presumption that the question is, not whether or not you believe him. The question is, will you follow him? So Revelation is really written for believers yeah. to help us be called out, you know, of Laodicea, to be called out of the funeral dirge that happens in Revelation 18. You know, the world's coming to an end. The mercantile life is gone. Rome has been thrown into the sea like a heavy millstone. Oh, it fell apart so quickly, you know, this imperial commerce. And the Revelation says... You know, and all these people are in line lamenting the end of the Roman way of life, which is luxury and um, having really good things. And the angel says, come out of that funeral dirge. Get out of line. Quit acting like the mm-hmm. things of this really matter. And, you know, I think Revelation, it has a powerful word for us today, uh, regardless of what pop eschatologists say. Yeah. Yeah, G.K. Chesterton once said, while St. John Revelator saw many strange and wild creatures in his revelation, he never saw a creature so strange and wild as one of his commentators. <laughs> Chesterton, he was a piece of work, yeah. wasn't he? Yep. Yeah. Whenever, just brilliant. Yeah. One other thing I think we should say about Revelation is it also gives a lot of hope because it's usually thought it was either written in the Neronian persecution or the Dominician persecution. And... In both cases, this is an early church thinking, you know, what's going on here? Why are we being killed? We're, we're the good guys here. What's going on? And we can say the same thing today with groups like ISIS and such out there. And Revelation is saying, 
Hold on, guys. Justice is coming, and it's not going to be pretty. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the wicked are going to get theirs. But what's interesting, even the Revelation's picture of how evil loses uh-huh. is evil turns on itself. you got the kings of the earth, right, who are opposing God all the time, uh-huh. and they're bringing in the whore of Babylon. And one minute she looks like a queen. The next minute she looks like a, a prostitute, basically. Uh-huh. Um, you can't tell the difference. And then they're bringing her in, the four beasts are, uh, on a on a platter, and they set her down and then devour her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she thinks she's going to be brought to a feast, but she's the main course. And Revelation pictures, I think, really dramatically how that's what evil tends to do. Evil cannot last forever mm-hmm. because it's not of God. Evil must be temporal, and evil always turns in on itself. And so the picture of the revelation is, you know, God will say it is, it's finished. I've had enough. Yeah. I've had it. Mm-hmm. And that day is coming. And uh, but we can see all around us, like you say, really the revelation coming true. Mm-hmm. Every day it's coming true. Not just in the future. It has been coming true for the last 2,000 years. Yeah, I like to remind everyone right now, you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. My guest is Dr. Rodney Reeves. We're hoping that Dr. Randy Richards will join us later on. No guarantees, we're hoping he will. But next week, we're going to have an interesting show. It's only going to be an hour long, but have you ever talked with someone about the resurrection and talked about the appearances of Jesus to the apostles? And we say, yeah, well, what about Eldine abductions? We have eyewitness testimonies of those. Well, we are having someone come on to talk about alien abductions and compare those accounts to the resurrection appearances of Jesus. My guest next week will be Dr. Kenneth Sampras from Reasons to Believe, and we're going to be talking about alien abductions and the resurrection. It could be an interesting topic. I'm not sure if it's really been done before, but I think this one's going to be very worthwhile. But now let's get back to rediscovering Jesus. Now, you've got several chapters of Jesus outside the Bible. And just to make sure we get to cover I'm going to skip ahead to the chapter that was my favorite one in the book. And interestingly, you said, yeah, this is the one that David Cape stepped out on some, and, and Dr. Richards and I wrote on it together. <laughs> that yeah. was the chapter on the American Jesus. Now, what well, are we talking about with the American Jesus? Yeah, and that's that's a loaded question. And, and really, the three of us really can't even answer that adequately. Mm-hmm. You can tell from the chapter we're relying heavily upon the work of Stephen Prothero. Mm-hmm. He's written a brilliant book about Jesus as a cultural icon. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another scholar, uh, Fox, who's written on this, uh, Richard Whiteman Fox, and also Stephen Nichols. All three of these scholars put forth some really fascinating historical, sociological, and theological explanations of how is it that Jesus has become such a cultural icon in America. It hasn't happened anywhere else. Mm-hmm. It hasn't happened in Europe. It hasn't happened in the global south. I mean, nowhere else but in America, mm-hmm. Jesus ends up being a an icon, an idol, if you will, an icon that is, that is easily recognizable and also as someone who endorses certain kinds of food, mm-hmm. certain kinds of uh, cars even. You know, what would Jesus drive? What would Jesus eat? He endorses men's ministries in a particular way. So Prothero has done a brilliant job showing that all these recent, um, you might say, manifestations of Jesus 
in America are really Jesus's that have been around from, from the beginning of our country. And so we take Prothero's ideas and Nichols as well and some with Fox and we show how the, how Jesus evolved as a, as a cultural hero uh, through 200 years of American history briefly and then we connect the dots with what we see are current manifestations of, of the American Jesus and it was it really was a lot of fun. I mean, yeah. as, as I said, as we said last time on your on your show, that um, uh, the basically way we approached this book is we divided the labor, and we had one writer write, uh, you know, be, take the first stab at a chapter, and then the other two would join in, and we would write on top of each other. And the really every chapter is a product of all three of us. But this is one of those situations where. Um, you know, I had written a good chunk of it, and then Randy came in and wrote a good chunk of it, and then we got together and put those two chunks together, and David was not in the room at all. And so, <laughs> and David, you know, we said, you know, he's the, he is the uh, voice of reason on the three of us. When we want to, Randy and I want to be a little edgy, David will always really say, now let's, you know, let's be careful, let's be wise. Well, David had to catch a flight. We met in Randy's place down in West Palm Beach. And uh, so David had to catch an early flight, and we we spent most of the day that day laughing and writing, thinking, "Oh, David's not going to like this." <laughs> well, his voice fine. He does show up. I mean, David reeled us in in a few places, but for the most part, that chapter uh, is one that maybe is a little edgy more than the others, mm -hmm. and maybe maybe it's a little edgier and provocative because we're Americans, after all. Yeah. And all of us, lest your readers think we're poking fun at others, we're poking fun at ourselves. Oh, yeah. We're Americans, too. Mm -hmm. and, and we see, once again, our own reflection in the Jesus we've created because of our kind of cultural prejudices and preferences. Yeah, when you're talking about how he's an idol, he's fucking idol, I can't but think of. I'm pretty sure you mentioned in the book the idea of Jesus junk. I just yeah. been talking about you can sell anything you want pretty much nowadays if you just put Jesus on it. It's amazing. In, in political races, yeah. you know, he's quoted by Democrats and Republicans. The idea is, mm -hmm. and even Christians, as Christians are trying to rally political support for their candidate, whoever that might be, Jesus is often championed as the one who endorses this person or that person. It really is... Uh, sad and at the same time astonishing how we say something like this that Jesus really is a chameleon. You yeah. can, you know, Schweitzer's again, Schweitzer's insight that he, he uh, you know, um, attacks scholars with saying you just created Jesus in your own image. So you're doing, you historical Jesus people is really a historian's Jesus. It's just your Jesus that you want. This is especially happening in pop culture. And in politics, we present the Jesus we want who supports the things we want to support and he likes the things that we like. And I mean, you, you've seen this, Nick, haven't you? Oh, we yeah. Have in our chapter, we're going to have pictures and pop culture of Jesus where, like, he's the, during the men's movement of the Promise Keepers, they had this picture of Jesus who was like a fighter in the ring. Have you seen that one? Uh, yeah. Kind of in the corner, and he's got this, he's hand, we all know what he looks like, right? He's got right. long brown hair. He's got sharp features. He's very handsome. He's dark-complected, perfectly trimmed beard. But, but this Jesus is muscular. I mean, he's mm -hmm. ripped. He's got the gloves on. And he's, he's a got, man's man. He's looking to the side like, man, I'm going to go, I'm, gonna, I'm winning this fight. And that picture, as well as so many others, whether it's Salman's, you know, portrait of Christ that 
sold millions and millions of copies back in the 30s and 40s. Um, once again, it's astonishing to what extent we recognize him. Oh, that's Jesus. Oh, that's Jesus. When there's not a single physical description of him in the scriptures. So that says something. That right there says something. And then secondly, it's astonishing how we can dress him up. We create him in our image. So when we ask the question, you know, who does who do people say that I am? Take Jesus' question throughout the whole book. Um, basically, we we Americans say, well, you're one of us. Yeah. You know, we can also talk about another aspect of this is what you call the Prince Charming Jesus. Because I I get so tired so many times of hearing some songs where you can't tell if you're singing them in church, if you're singing them to Jesus, or if it's a girl singing them to her boyfriend. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I know my wife's agreed with me, but we get sick so many times of hearing people say, Jesus is my boyfriend nowadays. Yeah. And there, it's not just something that offends men. It offends women, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, there, there are followers of Jesus, women followers of Jesus today. Mm-hmm that really don't like what I call theologically romantic songs. They're trying to speak of Jesus in what might be called, you know, romantic ways when when those songs, again, reflect um, something that is important in our culture. You know, our culture today prizes romance above all else. It's the number one pursuit that gives significance to our human existence is romance and Mm -hmm. romantic love. And therefore, you know, even sexual relationships, they're supposed to be the highest goal for all of us. And if you don't have a satisfying romantic relationship, Mm -hmm. if you don't have a satisfying sexual relationship, then you need to find one because you're missing out on the most important uh, joy in life. That's Mm -hmm. what our culture champions. And what saddens me is how that kind of those those uh, falsely uh, vaulted romantic ideas find their way in the church. And before mm-hmm. you know it, we're speaking romantically about Jesus in our so-called love songs as act of worship, mm-hmm. when I think they're built more on what we call a cultural script than a theological truth. Yeah. And some uh, listeners might be surprised to hear me speak about this aspect. When uh, Smallville came out on television that yes. was my favorite show yes. of the time I loved it Allie and I got married she ended up watching the whole series because you know I had to get her on the path of righteousness <laughs> and I, I told her you go for the whole series God gives you an extra jewel when you get in your crown in heaven because you've been such a good servant and I am definitely looking forward to the Supergirl series coming out this year but we do have a concept of a Superman Jesus. Now, I, I do think there are, are a lot of similarities between Superman and Jesus. And I think in some ways, some might be intentional, some unintentional. But we can't push that too far, can't we? Well, I mean, there's there's nothing wrong with having, you know, superheroes as yeah. fictional ideas, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, maybe superheroes is another kind of critique of our culture that says, humans, if we can just be smart enough and reasonable enough, we can always solve our own problems and yet create these myths of someone who has superpowers that can really overcome injustice much better than we can, or at least clean up the mess that we've made. I mean, there's something really sweet about even a Prince Charming myth and all of these 
you know, myths are fine. The problem yeah. is when we begin to dress Jesus up in, in those garments. And so the Superman Jesus shows up in some of the songs we sing um, and in the way we view him as someone who only, he only appears when we need him. Right. You know, when we need him, we call upon him. But then, of course, once he fixes our problem, then he needs to fly away. Right. <laughs> you know, because that's what Superman does. Yeah. I mean, and Superman would never say to Lois Lane or anyone, follow me. Right. Oh, no. Superman can only do what Superman can do. Mm-hmm. And so I've even heard people say that, you know, when Jesus said, follow me, I've heard some people. Well, you know, he was a perfect man after all. And we, you know, it's impossible to follow a perfect man. Mm-hmm. So obviously he really didn't mean it. I've actually heard people say that. Wow. So, so that G- Jesus is a superhero figure that cannot be um, imitated, cannot be followed. And mm-hmm. so I think the Superman Jesus is uh, you know, he is a an iconic figure that shows up in certain evangelical churches. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember years ago when I watched Daredevil. Yeah, I actually did watch Daredevil, and I actually did like it. And there was a scene at the start where Daredevil, he, he kind of starts off as more like an anti-hero type, and there are some kids that are scared of him at first. I mean, I think he kind of tones down what he's doing. He isn't as rough and vile as he was before, and... It made an impact on me, and I figured, you know, whenever we talk about these true heroes, there is some that I think we can give them that they're only truly heroic when they're really being like Christ. And I'm not meaning like in a way they beat up the bad guys and such, I just mean in their attitudes, their cause for justice and things of that sort. Probably like the book of Revelation again. Yes, yes, right. Mm-hmm. And and there's something deep in our psyche, isn't there? Right. We know injustice is wrong, and we mm-hmm. know we're not enough to take care of it, and we need help dealing mm-hmm. with injustice, that we are not the answer to our own, prob- own problems. Mm-hmm. And often in these same stories, these same myths, it requires the sacrifice of the hero. Right. So I mean, these, these stories are as old as, and they even mm-hmm. predate Christianity, for goodness sake, you know, right. the talking and rising God. So mm-hmm. there's something deep in our, in our uh, emotional... Um, well-being that says mm-hmm. the world is wrong and needs to be right. You know, Lewis's argument that we all have a sense of fair play in his book, Mere Christianity. Right. We all want justice. What we didn't expect is that a man would embody injustice so completely that he would offer himself as a sacrifice to effect justice on earth. Mm-hmm. And that the way of the cross, the way of sacrifice, is the way righteousness and justice comes. I mean, we won't, we don't mind having a hero take care of our problems. Mm-hmm. What we really don't want is a hero that says, "Now follow me, yeah. pick up a cross, deny yourself. You need to be a part of this. This is the way of the kingdom." And uh, to me, that's that's the unique quality of you might say the story of Jesus Christ compared to superheroes. If we're talking about Jesus and his cross, if there was one Jesus that won't really talk about his cross, that would be the Muslim Jesus. And with mm-hmm. ISIS being in the news now, a lot, that's something that people are going to be wondering about because Islam believes a lot of really good things about Jesus. They believe Jesus was born of a virgin. They believe he was Messiah. They believe that he is going to come back again someday. They believe that... He was sinless. I, before Muhammad came, he was the greatest prophet of all. And this all sounds really good. Is, is the Jesus of Islam really that different from our Jesus? Yeah, and there's so much that overlaps because yeah. they, 
you know, they rely upon a certain gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't one that got in our our New Testament, but, you know, some think that they rely upon uh, a gospel uh, of Barnabas and um, and also that they, you know, they rely upon the Koran. It relied upon not only the these gospels uh, that were apocryphal, but also the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. So really, Islam is kind of a it's a mix of of the Jewish scriptures and even some of the Christian writings that you know never made it into our canon. Mm-hmm. Right, and so it, we we shouldn't be surprised to hear similarities in in their understanding of who Jesus is. He's a great prophet, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life. You know, um, basically going to return on the last day. Um, and but the the glaring difference there there are two major differences. They do not affirm that Jesus is you know the Son of God, the unique only begotten Son of God, and they do not affirm therefore that He died on the cross. They they and since they say He didn't really die on a cross, therefore. There is no atonement theology in, in the Muslim faith. There's no way that his cross accomplished anything because, as they, you know, they do not believe he died on the cross. Mm-hmm. So it was, a, I think, uh, it's, you know, one argument, one thing they say is you kind of a uh, mistaken identity situation. The, they crucified the wrong man. Right. You know, I, I really think this is, as Michael Cameron said, this is one of the weakest points, unfortunately, Islam has for them. Because if you're going to start denying the crucifixion of Jesus, you're pretty much out there in left field of storming. Even Gerd Ludemann in his book, What Really Happened to Jesus, I mean, one of the very first sentences something along the lines of, the fact that Jesus Christ was crucified and died under the hands of Pontius Pilate is indisputable. We don't need to discuss it any further. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, you know, there, there's some very, very, very radical skeptics now. Ludman is, you know, pretty radical in his suspicions about the gospel story. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're exactly right. I mean, the great majority of historians, because it's corroborated not just in the gospels, but they're Roman historians that refer to the the death of Jesus as well as, um, you know, Josephus. So, yeah. And so, the, there, I am I am certainly not an expert in, in the Quran. And I really, you know, David and Randy has spent a lot more time in the Quran than I have. But one of the glaring problems with the Muslim faith is, and therefore one of the biggest differences from the way we read Jesus, is the fact that we we believe that Christ not only was crucified, as even other historians say, but that his death meant something. Mm-hmm. And it meant that uh, we can find forgiveness of sin because of his death. And the reason we know that is because he was raised from the dead. And so without a cross crucifixion, there is no resurrection. Really, the Muslims deny both. Um, you know, Jesus may have been translated into the heavens, but he was not raised from the dead because he never died. They can't allow that. They cannot, that cannot allow the idea that he would be crucified, cursed like that. Mm-hmm. So the curse of the cross is a problem for them, and, and especially the fact that that death would have any atoning significance, as uh, they deny it completely. And it makes sense when you think about the yeah. Muslim faith, because they they believe that the way of righteousness, the way they are absolved of their sin, 
is by works, by mm. doing the right things that Muhammad, you know, taught his followers to do. So it's very much, and the Muslim faith is very much what we would call a works righteousness. Mm. Well, I'd like to remind everyone at this point, you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, and everything we do here really is listener-supported, and we could really use your support, especially because, I mean, finances are always tight for us, and with my own self working on my education even further, things are even tighter. Now, if you want to take part in that, and you want to help support us, go to our website at deeperwaters.ddns.net, and on the left, you scroll down some, you'll find a link that says, Help Support the Work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. You click that link that's in there, and you get taken to Risen Jesus. Have you gone to the right place? Yes, uh, that's the ministry of my in-laws, which, by the way, today is my mother-in-law's birthday, so if you're listening to this today, go wish her a happy birthday. And you click on that, and when you go there, you can make your donation, but then after you make your donation, this is very important, you contact me or Debbie or Mike or someone connect to us and say hey I made a donation I want to go to Nick Peters I want to go to Deeper Waters we will get your donation it will be tax deductible and if you can set yourself up to be a monthly donor that would be even better you're kind of a bread and butter of what we do you really give us a firm rock that we can rely on and the, as you go down you can also see that we have some books that are for sale that I have written or co-written, like Defining Inerrancy, or A Creed for the Ages, or Groundless, or God and Natural Disasters. You pick up any of those, I'll get a small amount of proceeds from them. And then, as we were talking about the Prince Charming Jesus, where Jesus might not be meant to be Prince Charming, but you're meant to be Prince Charming to the lady in your life. So why not buy some jewelry here and... You can see the link support us via purchasing jewelry and you click on that and you type in the access code of love and that's on my uh, friend Lena Clester site so you go and you buy some jewelry for that woman that you do love and you could make her very very happy and I, I'm pretty sure you appreciate having a happy wife happy wife happy life and when you make that purchase, 25% of what you purchase, when you use the access code and say you were referred by Deeper Waters, 25% of what you purchase will go to us. And we, we could surely use that support right now. So I really want to encourage you all to donate to us and help us keep going. We, we try to provide the blog, the podcast, as a free service, a free gift, and we want to keep doing that. So... If you want to stand behind us and tell us that you support, please consider that. And if you can't make a donation, at least consider going to iTunes and leaving a good, positive review. I'd really love to see those. Uh, Dr. Richards, do you have a cause you'd like to see people donate to? Uh, You mean, yeah. Uh, Is Randy with us or? Oh, I'm sorry, Dr. Richards. I thought maybe Randy (laughs) had joined us. I was like, really good. Uh, No, I I would encourage them to support your ministry, Nick. Mm -hmm. That's what we did last time, and I was very good about it. You know, we, we really do need men and women who uh, choose, you know, that try to offer their ministry through a variety of avenues. And so I think your mm-hmm. your podcasts and your blog, these are things that we take for granted oh, and yeah. your listeners support you in that way. Thank you very much. Now, when we were talking about the Muslim Jesus, one other aspect I think that would make sense is 
and I'm sure Dr. Richards would know about this very well, is that the uh, Muslim faith came about in a very strong honor-shame context. And one thing they have that we could say is right, they, they realize it would be utterly shameful for the Messiah, for God to have a son and for him to be crucified, especially. So they say, this surely must not happen. God would never allow this to happen. And one can really understand that culture, why they would think such a thing. This would be a problem the early Christians would have had to face as well, because if you go up to someone and say, hey, I'd like to tell you about our Messiah, King Jesus, okay, well, about where he was crucified, and okay, I don't need to hear anymore. Thank you very much. And the the Muslim faith maybe has something there in their luck that they're wrong, but they, it should make us pause and really think about, yeah, this is exactly what happened in Christianity. The book of Acts, of course, picks up on that very theme. And the reason we miss it, Nick, is because we're not an honor culture in the right. West. We're, we're shameless, so we right. have no sense of honor. Mm-hmm. But, but in their world, it was the highest commodity. It was the one thing everyone wanted mm-hmm. was social approval of your group because your identity is embedded in your group. Right. You know, who you are is not what you achieve individually. Who you are is the family you're born to and the honor of your family name. So we miss mm-hmm. the significance of these things in the New Testament. Um, and therefore, Acts is a, is a book that Luke writes to help the church recognize that by experiencing the same shameful treatment that Jesus received was indeed the way of righteousness. And so that's why you got that story of after the disciples are beaten because they keep preaching the gospel in the temple, they, it says that they were honored to suffer shame and worthy for his name. And so what is foolishness, again, um, to uh, the world we see as the wisdom of God. And the only way true righteousness comes is through sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Um, because and so on so many, for so many reasons, but it's the ultimate way that evil is undone mm-hmm. is sacrifice. Because evil lives in this vicious cycle of violence. It lives, it multiplies. But if you, like Christ, you know, took upon himself the evil of the world, the sin of the world, the, you might say the violence of the world, then evil was undone. So not only does the book of Acts show how the church lived out that gospel, uh, embracing the shame as honor, embracing the death of Jesus as life, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but Paul does. I mean, right. Paul spends a lot of time, for example, in his letter to the Corinthians, a Roman colony that prized Roman honor. Uh, the first two chapters, he's talking a lot about this wisdom of God that's revealed through the cross of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so Paul, and then when you look at Paul's life, I mean, he was a mess of a man. I mean, all these terrible things happened to him, and his enemies, and even some of his own converts trying to convince him, you know, that God doesn't like you. <laughs> you know, you get in a ship and here comes a bunch of storms that God, you know, kicks up. You go down the road and God doesn't protect you from the robbers of the highwaymen. So, um, you know, what God obviously has cursed you. And Paul basically embraces these these difficulties, these sufferings, these weaknesses, the curse he embraces as the blessing of God. Mm-hmm. So Paul spends a lot of time doing the same thing, uh, explaining why that was so shameful is really honorable to him. You know, when we talked about the American Jesus, if there was a Jesus 
That really does seem to be a very American Jesus. It would be the Jesus of Mormonism, because this Jesus is all about America. Everything is centered in America. The promised land is even in America. And we had Mitt Romney running for president back in 2012. And, you know, when those Mormons come to our door, they seem like very nice people. They're usually some of the nicest people you ever meet. And could they really be believing in a different Jesus? Well, and so much of their Jesus is very similar to ours mm-hmm. um, because they, you know, they, they, they ascribe, they support the New Testament. You mm-hmm. know, that they, they believe passionately in every verse of, say, the Gospels and of, of Paul. And so they're very supportive of the New Testament. And, but the Book of Mormon, and especially, and not so much the Book of Mormon, but it's the other writings of Joseph Smith, when you, when you really begin to see what they proudly call is an unorthodox Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, so there's some similarities. There, there's some overlap. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you, you might read a Mormon statement of faith about the personal work of Jesus based on the, the, they lived a perfect life, they offered himself as a sacrifice for sin, there's atonement found in that sacrifice, that God raised him from the dead, and that we're to live in obedience to him, and that Jesus is going to come back one day. Mormons believe all of that. They're really the main difference between our, you know, the Jesus you read in the New Testament and the Mormon Jesus shows up in that Mormon literature, Mormon scriptures that really address what Jesus was like before he was born, even before Genesis 1-1, and then what he did, you might say, after Acts 28. <laughs> so it's really the Jesus outside the New Testament, even outside the Bible, where the uniqueness of the Mormon Jesus shows up. Uh, Dr. Reeves, hold on a second, because I think Dr. Richards is here to uh, join us here, so I'm going to try and add him to the call right now. So, right now I'm trying to get Dr. Richards on the line here, and then we're going to try and merge the calls together. I am on uh, Nick. Hey! Hey! Hey, Randy! I'm so glad you're here. (laughs) Well, thanks. Rodney, I, I decided to bring the quality of the whole conversation down. No, mm-hmm. no, no, not so. <laughs> it, 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 it's okay. Dr. Reeves has been talking smack about you, or you've been gone anyway. <laughs> oh, now, Dick, that's not true. Uh, <laughs> see, here's the thing. He can listen to the podcast. No, can't he? What was actually said. Uh, yeah, we're, we'll do some great editing later on. <laughs> oh, I see. You're going to do some creative editing. Uh, uh, Dr. Richards, let's uh, give you an introduction here. He's a... Uh, he loves training students for ministry, both domestically and internationally. He's been teaching since 1986 at State University in Vinabrod, an Indonesian seminary. And upon returning to the States, he served to two Christian universities before joining Palm Beach Atlantic University as the dean of the School of Ministry in 2006. His wife, Stacia, has joyfully accompanied him from the jungles of Indonesia to rice fields in Arkansas to beautiful South Florida, where I'm sure they're suffering for Jesus together. And they have two fine sons, Josh, with a Ph.D. from 2012 in the University of St. Andrews, Scotland, and he's a professor in English, and Jacob, with a Ph.D. in the College of Medicine in the University of Florida, and he's a medical researcher. Dr. Richards has authored or co-authored seven books and dozens of articles, including Rediscovering Jesus, Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, Reading, writing, and the production and transmission of manuscripts from the background of the New Testament and examination of the context of early Christianity. 
Also, we have a real offer. Please stand up for your offer in Greco-Roman letter writing. And come let us read in USA's and Christian apologetics. Pauline prescripts in Greco-Roman epistolary convention and Christian origins and classical culture, society, and liter- social and literary context from the New Testament. And a dozen articles on Baker Illustrated Bible Dictionary. He's just finished another popular book, Paul Behaving Badly, and is finishing a little book for new Bible scholars, both with InterVarsity Press, and completing chapters in two other books and several dictionary articles. He's a popular lecturer, speaker, and preacher in places as diverse as Wycliffe Hall, Kathmandu, and Kenya. He's a senior scholar at the IRLBR Summer Summit at Tyndall House and conducts missionary training workshops and currently serves as a teaching pastor at Grace Fellowship Church in West Palm Beach. And uh, Dr. Richards, you're also the second person to be making their third appearance on the show. So welcome oh, back. I am honored. Thank you. Yeah, I'm going to have to tell Mike he's going to have to step up his game now. <laughs> I don't think I want to try to take him on, so <laughs> I'll just be glad to be second. Can you tell us a little bit briefly about how you got to be doing what you're doing? Uh, well, uh, you mean in teaching or in the way of writing with Rodney? How you got to be doing what you're doing today overall? Well, a little bit uh, of your story. All right. Well, that's fair, uh, Nick. Uh, Rodney and I were actually in seminary together back when dinosaurs roamed the earth. And then uh, uh, Rodney headed out to a uh, little Christian college in Arkansas, and I headed abroad to uh, Indonesia where we both – uh, taught students about uh, loving the Lord and, and uh, serving the church. And uh, I guess eight or ten years later, uh, Rodney was called to a, a rather large church in that area and created a, a vacancy at the college where he was, and I was returning to the States. And so I was very grateful to uh, take his spot. It was actually big shoes to fill, but it was fun. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've I've enjoyed that. I think my experience abroad taught me um, you know, just a lot about reading the Bible. That's probably what gave rise to my interest in uh, cross-cultural hermeneutics. Also, the interest, Nick, that you and I share in honor and shame. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. In fact, I just sent an article off yesterday that, that will interest you. Was Matthew a plagiarist? Uh, and uh, and the argument I argue is no, but I use honor and shame to do it. I just think that honor and shame is the 800-pound gorilla in the room, and it's what's going on in the background all the time. So uh, that's a little bit about how I uh, got them doing what I'm doing. In the end, I you know it's about students and training them for ministry. I think. Well, I would enjoy it very much if you could send me that article. Sometime. I sure would. But right now we're talking about the Mormon Jesus, and we've already talked about the American Jesus, which I'd said was my favorite chapter from a book, and the one that Dr. Capes wasn't really able to reel you all in on, so you were able to go crazy on. <laughs> but I was saying the Mormon Jesus True. really does embody a lot of the American Jesus in many ways, because he's so about America, right? That is true, and uh, I think it he really is probably, as Rodney quipped, the first American uh, religion. Mm-hmm. Um, he is I, – I think what, what I learned out of that chapter that I hadn't really thought through before, it may have been Rodney that pointed it out, that from womb to tomb, Jesus, the Mormon Jesus, is orthodox. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, There's nothing unusual about him from birth to, uh, to the resurrection story, and I think that's what uh, makes it 
uh, difficult, I think, when our friends come knocking on our doors to talk because that's the part of Jesus that we normally talk about. And so when we're visiting with them, it just seems like, gosh, we just agree on everything. And, and, and actually we do from the womb to tomb. It's the stuff uh, in between. I think it was also Rodney that quit that in some ways they get Jesus right and God wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I do have a concern oftentimes when I see the uh, Mormon evangelical dialogue going on. Maybe you two can comment on this. It seems like uh, evangelicals are giving a whole lot more to Mormonism, and Mormons really aren't bending that much at all. And that that kind of concerns me when I see it happening. Well, I really we probably need our third author. Uh, for that part of the conversation because that's really David's expertise more than uh, mine or even Rodney's. I'm uh, unlike your father-in-law. I am I am not an apologist. I, you know, I uh, it's just kind of outside my skill set. I I understand what you're saying, mm-hmm. and uh, I could probably wax eloquently for a few minutes, but I'd really be sharing what I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Doctor Reeves, do you have anything you'd say to that? Well, I, I, I think I see what you're saying. What, what, here's what concerns me is that um, often this convergence of traditions happens for political purposes. Mm-hmm. So you see these chats and they get together and they're, they're trying to rally around a political cause, which is all well and good. I, I don't have a yeah. problem with that. But the problem is you walk away from that and therefore you presume, therefore, that we have the same tradition. Right. And you know, let's just let's just respect one another, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Mormons are not uh, evangelical Christians, and evangelical Christians are not Mormons. That's just the way it is. And the reason is because, as Randy said, is that you know their, their doctrine varies from Orthodox doctrine about Jesus. And again, the Mormons are proud to point that out. Joseph Smith was convinced that the Orthodox Jesus was really. Uh, polluted by Greek philosophy during the Christological councils. Mm-hmm. And they're really, they're really proud of the fact that, that the Mormon Jesus is not orthodox. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not a negative stereotype for them. Mm-hmm. They, they embrace that completely. Mm-hmm. And just be quick to point out where he is different from, you know, the Mormon Jesus is different from, the, from our Jesus, you might say, or the Jesus of orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, their narrative is very different. Uh, where we have a narrative where we celebrate God becoming man, their narrative is they celebrate man becoming God. Right. And that's a that's a that's two different trajectories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. ours is a God coming down; theirs is a trajectory of man going up. And um, so, there's so many differences that it shouldn't surprise us that maybe when we first start talking about Jesus. It sounds like we're talking about the same one, but when you begin to talk more specifically about their doctrine compared to our doctrine, you see some really significant differences. And if anyone's wanting more, since uh, Dr. Capes isn't here, and I've been told he's the one who's done a lot on this, if you want to know more about Mormonism, you can listen to the show I recorded last on September 19th, where I interviewed Rob Bowman, and we talked about mm-hmm. Joseph Smith and his seer stone. But... Let's go to a Jesus I'm sure both of you have something to say about, and that's the historical Jesus. And I'm sure that there are some listeners who are Christians on my show who are saying, why would that be a problem? Aren't we supposed to believe in the historical Jesus? Well, let, let me answer uh, that. I, 
Yes, we actually struggled a little bit with that, uh, the title for that uh, mm -hmm. chapter. It's the Jesus of the Enlightenment. Of course, the problem with that is that's a very positive title. How can you be against enlightenment? Right. And, and in the end, we're, it's actually the Jesus of the rationalists. Mm -hmm. It's part of the rationalism movement. And we thought about trying to use uh, uh, that title, but, but they would not uh, use that title. They would refer to themselves as looking for the historical Jesus. And by that, they mean the Jesus that rationalism produces, mm -hmm. the Jesus that has no pre-story or post-story. Um, you know, they assume that the, the world is a closed continuum, the miraculous cannot occur, and therefore Jesus, by definition, has to be an ordinary a human being. He can be extraordinary in the sense that there are occasionally extraordinary humans. He can be inspiring in the sense that there can be inspiring humans, but he still falls within the realm of humanity. Mm -hmm. Dr. Reeves, do you have anything you'd like to add to that? Well, no, I mean, that Randy's exactly right. Mm -hmm. is we really did struggle with it. We even thought about calling it the historian's Jesus. But mm -hmm. uh, everyone talks about the historical Jesus um, in light of scholarly pursuit. It may not be something lay people are familiar with, but scholars spend a lot of time trying to get at the Jesus that history would preserve for us. And they work with the presumption that the faith documents of the New Testament are not reliable because they have an agenda. And the agenda is to convince G people, readers, that Jesus was more than a man, that he's the Son of God. And therefore, with such a theological, or you might say an evangelistic agenda, the presumption is, well, these documents can't be reliable. They're going to be biased. And what we're here to do, like Randy said, with, with certain what they would pretend to be are unquestionable criteria of what is really authentic. Mm -hmm. They will sort out the bias and the prejudice and the superstition and the stuff of faith, of legend, and they will therefore, you know, excise those parts from the Gospels. And what we have left are what they've decided is the real or the historical Jesus. Now, mm -hmm. here's the problem. Or there are very problems, but here's the main problem. That Jesus is a constructed one. Mm -hmm. It's man-made. They've made it, whoever the historian is. And, uh, and that's the premise we're challenging throughout the whole book, is this, this, this uh, presumption that all of us can, can have an infallible, real Jesus, but in the truth of the matter, it's, they're just as guilty as constructing one. Mm -hmm. As we talked about earlier, Randy, we talked about Nick brought up Schweitzer and his critique of the first questers early in our program mm -hmm. and how Schweitzer, you know, held a mirror up to them and says, look what you've done. You've created Jesus in your own image. And Nick talked about how that is a theme throughout our book, and I think he's right. Mm -hmm. And in this chapter, uh, you know, Randy is one of the major writers of this chapter. He, he points out over and over again how the prejudices, the modern prejudices of a rationalist approach is really – uh, ends up producing a Jesus that looks like the historian. Mm -hmm. it, it is inevitably a challenge all of us face. You know, I, I tell my students, if if your Jesus only hates the things that you hate, then it's possible you've also trimmed Jesus down into uh, one that ends up looking like us. So instead of uh, us becoming like Jesus, 
Jesus ends up becoming like us. And when I was thinking about this just now, I remember reading five views on the historical Jesus, and one of them was John Darwin at Crossan. And as I was trying to, some of my thoughts just now, I about saying, when you look at the way non-Christian scholars explain the historical Jesus, it looks to me like either they have a hard time explaining what he did, like Adam crucified, or either why anyone would bother believing in him after the crucifixion. And when I look at, for instance, John Dominic Crossan's chapter from here, I could talk about that. Uh, he talks about how John the Baptist got beheaded for his radical message, and so Jesus tones his message down and makes it a message of love one another and care for one another and such. And I mean, it's something... You know, I can understand you get it, but here's the glaring problem I see. This Jesus would never get crucified. He's not a threat to anyone whatsoever. He's not challenging anything. I mean, you don't go around and say, oh, Jesus is teaching us we have to love one another. We better crucify this guy right quick. Well, that is the, uh, I think that is the critique. He's the kind of Jesus you would invite over for tea. Right. Um, you know, he's just such a likable fellow and, and hardly inspiring, hardly worth dying for. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything you'd like to add to that also, Dr. Reeves? No, I, that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. And that's something I think, again, Randy points out in that chapter mm-hmm. is uh, the, the, the crucifiability question. Mm-hmm. And again, you, you bring up a good point. And Randy said as well, this is not just a problem that's evident among scholars. Mm-hmm. We all have a Jesus that has been trimmed down or has been altered according to our preferences. And what right. we're hoping to do in the book, really, is helping the reader rediscover the parts of Jesus they don't want to look at. Right. Either in the New Testament or even outside that will help us perhaps see him better than even what we what we realize or recognize. Yeah, I, I can say as one who's read the Mormon scriptures and the Muslim scriptures that when you do read these outside scriptures and then come back to the real deal, as I prefer to say, it really looks totally different because you just get to see how different the Bible looks in comparison. Yeah. It is, I, uh, I, go ahead, Rodney. I was just going to say, you know, the Mormon, the Book of Mormon is, there's really nothing all that unorthodox about it. I didn't find anything unorthodox about Jesus in that book. It's a story about these these indigenous Americans. Well, really, no Jews who traveled, who left Israel when Nebuchadnezzar, you know, takes over uh, Jerusalem, and they get in these boats and they come like Christopher Columbus to America, and these two Jewish tribes settle and they war with one another, <clears throat> and eventually Jesus, post-resurrection appearance, comes to them, preaches the gospel, quotes practically his entire Sermon on the Mount according to Matthew, does several things that he does in Acts, and then leaves them. So he kind of like you know. What he says and what he does in the Book of Mormon is pretty much the New Testament. So it's the the Book of Mormon is really, I mean, from our perspective, it's more like a fanciful tale. Well, what if that would happen? Well, that would be nice, I guess. I don't know. But really, it's the stuff outside the Book of Mormon, the Pearl of Great Price, uh, the Doctrine of the Covenants, mm-hmm. and especially King Follett's sermon, which some Mormons don't recognize scriptures, others do. That's where these kind of strange, unorthodox ideas show up that, you know, they don't believe in the Trinity, that Jesus is a separate God from God the Father, and that God the Father was really a human before he became a God, and 
these ideas are the parts of the Mormon Jesus that <clears throat> are very, very unorthodox and very different from our view of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Dr. Richards, what were you going to say? Well, I was just going to add, I, one of the interesting things when you look at the uh, the Book of Mormon that you know Jesus presents his gospel in New Testament times, then he goes and presents it uh, in uh, in in America. Both times, the gospel really doesn't come through. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't come through really until Joseph Smith comes along and straightens it out. And so uh, Rodney had this great line that. In, in some ways, the Mormon Jesus is a failure. You know, he never really is able to get his message out, and he really needs Joseph Smith to help him out. Mm-hmm. In fact, there is a quote I understand from Joseph Smith where he said that he did something even greater than Jesus, that he built up a church that has lasted, and not even Jesus did that. Wow, who said that? Joseph Smith. Wow, well, there it is. I mean, I've not read that quote, but yeah, yeah, it's... Yeah. Without without Joseph Smith, there would be no Mormon faith, and mm-hmm. and of course the Mormons know that very well, and that's why to to them he is the greatest prophet that ever lived. Mm-hmm. Now, something also about the historical Jesus is the the lack of miracles that these have to be explained. Away. Although there there are some people there, even the secular side starting to say, yeah, we have to look at maybe there were some things that did happen, such as exorcism. And things of that sort. It always strikes me as interesting when I meet people who talk about how, well, sure, back then they believed in miracles, but we know much better today. We have science. We know how these things work. And I just hear my thing. Yeah, um, I hate to tell you, it's back then they knew people didn't walk on water. They knew dead people stay dead. They knew what it took to ba- make a baby. This isn't anything new. Having modern science wouldn't change anything in this regard. They, they still knew what a miracle was. Right. I, I do think that um, that you're right, Nick. <clears throat> and actually, it's interesting, this this uh, secular movement to concede certain things, <clears throat> like exorcisms, some of the inexplicable, that, that kind of thing, actually is more postmodern. You know, now that, you know, uh, postmodernity has allowed for you know, chaos theory for for there to be inexplicable things happening. Then suddenly, secular uh, secularists are also saying, "Well, you know, there could have been things back then." But in general, the idea is that um, miracles don't happen now, so they didn't happen then. Mm-hmm. Of course, Craig Keener has that fascinating two volume work on miracles, where he says that actually they are happening now. Um, <laughs> we we have to be very uh, blind. We have to put on real blinders to see that they're not happening now. And so his argument is, well, based on that theory, since they are happening now, then they had to have happened then. It's really a, a great piece of work. But a lot of what the historians use, the rationalists use, are in general sound ideas. The idea that the world Jesus lived in is in continuity to the world that we're in now. You know, it um, it wasn't long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. It was really on the planet Earth. Julius Caesar really was there, Augustus. You know, we can see statues to them. We can go visit Nazareth. We can see Caiaphas's house, that sort of thing. That that world is in continuity and that it operated by the same laws of physics then that it does now. And I, and I would agree with that. And I think that the miracles that happen today demonstrate that they could have happened back then. So there's a lot about the rationalist world that um, 
that it is okay. The, it makes sense, uh, right, yeah. I mean, it's, right. It's, right. Rationalism is not completely wrong. Right. No. It just doesn't solve all all the problems. Right. Mm-hmm. I think the challenge they have is they say it is the way to determine truth, mm-hmm. and we said no, it is a way. That I do think that God tends to let the world run along normal rational rules, except when He doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that's the part that they don't allow. Mm-hmm. When, he's, when he acts like you know a God who can do what He wants, then that's a problem. Yeah. Right. And, as yeah. I tell my uh, students all the time, one of the perks of being sovereign is you get to do whatever you want. Yeah. C.S. Lewis did once say that if you uh, grant the existence of God, where well, you're probably at a point where you have to grant some miracles. In fact, you should expect them. And yeah. for that great volume, or actually two volumes that you talk about, Dr. Richards, if anyone's interested, just check out archives, August 10th, 2013. Craig Keener came on to talk about miracles. So if you want that, you can go listen to it. And just to get your taste buds wet a little bit, Craig Keener is going to be back in December of this year, and he's going to be talking about the book of Acts. Because I think he's written a little bit on that oh, book. My. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. And, and like 45,000 or more references to ancient material. It, it, and every place you turn is just a wealth of information. He is such a fine Christian gentleman and such a gentle soul and just such a thorough scholar. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's it's just really one of the finest pieces on Acts that we'll see in the last hundred years or maybe for the next hundred. Yeah. Even Tim McGrew was raising his eyebrows when you heard how long the book was. I even wanted to put the index of a bibliography on the CD if they could. Oh, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. His, research, yeah. his research skills. And he's fair-handed. He's very fair as he works through these issues that can be very thorny. And he's got a brilliant mind. He's, As Randy said, he's a gracious, gracious Christian. You'd never know he was so brilliant because mm-hmm. <laughs> he certainly uh, is not pretentious in any way. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, as we've uh, had a great interview, uh, unfortunately it's about time we start wrapping things up, but I would like to really encourage everyone, please get your hands on Rediscovering Jesus. It's a very interesting read. We've only got to touch on bits and pieces today. There, there's plenty more it can be said, and uh, you can go and get it on Amazon and such. And, uh, um, Dr. Richards, you were... A late joiner here. Would you like to tell everyone out there where they can go if they want to find out more about you and your work? Well, I actually have a, a blog, mm-hmm. uh, RandolphRichards.com, uh, R-A-N-D-O-L-P-H, uh, Richards.com. Mm-hmm. And it has a little bit uh, uh, in there, and you can find out a little bit more about uh, what I'm doing and and uh, readers are invited, of course, to contact me through the vo- uh, blog, and I'd be delighted to, uh-huh. to uh, respond. Um, I think Rodney, David, and I uh, really are interested in doing things that help the kingdom. And so in any way that we can, we're just always delighted to to uh, respond to people uh-huh. and uh, try to clarify more of what we believe and why we believe it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I've just found the book again on Amazon for those interested. It's only out in Kindle and hardcover right now. The hardcover is twenty three ninety one. The Kindle is nineteen ninety nine. So I encourage you to go get that. Um, Doctor Reeves, if someone wants to find out more about you, do you have a website, a place you can go? Well, I, you know, I'm not as as uh, effective a blogger as Randy is. I do have a blog, a genuine faith. It's on Blogspot. 
I haven't posted there in a while, so I'm a terrible blogger. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but you know, the website at the university where I teach has some information about me, and I teach at Southwest Baptist University. So if they go to sbunib.edu and look up my name, they can find some more information about, you know, what I'm doing now. And But you pretty much covered it, Nick. I mean, you covered things we're working on now. And I'm, I was going to ask Randy while we got him on the line, what are you finished, Randy, with your new book, Paul Behaving Badly? We are. We sent that little rascal off, and it's really a lot of fun. If, if uh, anybody had a chance to read Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, uh, Brandon and I are back at it. It's part of a series. Uh, there was the God Behaving Badly book, and then Mark Strauss has written a Jesus Behaving Badly. You know, he overturns tables and, and causes a lot of controversy. Is that, uh, that, is that book out yet, Randy? I think it may be out next month, maybe oh. in just a couple of weeks, Randy. Yeah. And then uh, this one will be out hopefully uh, late spring. Uh, Paul does uh, behave badly. We have uh, chapters on, like, uh, Paul's kind of a jerk. and uh, <laughs> He can be, uh, you know, seems pro-slavery at times and hates women and bashes gays and twists scriptures. And, and what we try to do in all of that is to really give it a genuine hearing. And sometimes when we got to the end of that first section, we thought, oh, my gosh, he really is kind of a jerk. And then, <laughs> and, and then we wanted to go back and say, okay, well, let's really look at it. And let's yeah. put this in context, historical context and scripture context. And, uh, and it's really fun. And, and uh, as someone who's dedicated his life to uh, studying Paul and trying to imitate him, as he asks, um, I, it's, it's really a fun book, I think. And I bet you'll, you'll need to have him, Nick, on when he when he comes out with that book. I'm I sure. was just about to say, if you want to come <laughs> on and talk about it, we'll do that, Nick. You know, you can always route, uh, uh, rope us in. Um, Doctor Richard, do you have any final message you'd like to leave with the Deeper Waters audience? Um, I don't think so. I do hope that they will support your work on your blog um, you. if they find it helpful. I hope that they will mm -hmm. uh, use. The links that you provide to help them uh, uh, to help support the work. I do think getting thoughtful conversations going is a wonderful thing, and I appreciate you doing that. Mm -hmm. And uh, Dr. Reeves, same to you. Do you have any final words you'd like to leave? No, not necessarily. It's been a really good conversation. Mm -hmm. Glad Randy was able to join us, and I, once again, I just wish David could have been with us. He is he is such a prince of a guy. He's so articulate. So talk about a kind Christian scholar right? Who, who's made significant contributions to really Paul's theology. Right. So I'm, I'm really regret for your listeners that, mm -hmm. say that, that David was not a part of the conversation. But, yeah. but, David's, but David's been on your, on your blog before or on your uh, podcast before, hasn't he? Yes, he's been on talking about the voice, and I think we're going to have him on again next month talking about his book, Slow to Judge. Oh, looking forward to that myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good. Well, guys, I'd like to thank you for coming on again. Like I told Dr. Reeves earlier, I guess I didn't annoy you all too badly the second, the last time. You all both want to come back. So uh, I thank you for coming on, and I really hope we'll see you all back here again sometime. Thank you, Nick. Thanks, Nick. And I remind everyone that this is Deeper Waters Podcast. And uh, next week, we're going to have Ken Sampars on from Reasons to Believe. We're going to talk about alien abductions and the resurrection. Now, that was an interesting topic to consider as well. For now, I am Nick Peters, and I am signing off. <laughs>